You're listening to Grassroots Music UK, the podcast for unsigned artists. And this is the final curtain call. First of all, Happy New Year to you, 2022. Um, let's hope it brings a little bit more than 2021 did in terms of getting back out there and gigging again for the musicians at uh, my level, grassroots level. The people who are regularly squeezing all your gear into the back of your car like a jigsaw puzzle and driving off um, to play your shows. Um, this week I thought it was a nice opportunity to um, highlight uh, one of my favourite venues um, over the years that I played a couple of times um, but always followed and um, always was a big uh, fan, I suppose, of this particular venue, just because it intrigued me. Um, and I'd forgotten about, you know, uh, uh, about doing it when I was putting everything together, because I thought, well, it can wait, and I'm concentrating on Essex and the usual suspects. And then um, I heard a little bit of news, and I thought, well, OK, this seems like a good time to celebrate it. And at the end of the day, right... It is Grassroots Music UK. It's not Grassroots Music Essex. Um, And although I did a little piece a few weeks ago about Wales as well and the rock and roll bands that that came out of Wales, um, a lot of what I've done has been about the Essex music scene. Um, And I thought, no, I need to, you know, there's an opportunity here to look at one of the other venues. So we're going to look today um, at a venue called the Limelight Club in crew or just the limelight in crew people kind of knew it as two different things um, and the reason i do that um, is because of the sad news that the promoter for the limelight club for many many years ray uh, ray bisfam uh, b-i-s-p-h-a-m uh, passed away just after new year and there have been countless tributes um, on facebook and i've been alerted to a few of them because um, of some of the people that I follow and people that follow me on social media. And although I only met Ray on the on the two occasions that we played there, um, it seems like a good time to pay tribute to him, the hard work that he put in, um, and also to the legend that is the Limelightning crew that has been featured um, on TV and has pretty much had everybody that's everybody at our level and some international superstars as well have played there um a little bit like Riga and a little bit like some of the other venues um that I've talked about the army and navy um the limelight is similar to that um now again with everything else my personal experience of playing there um was way back in 2005 and I played there with Kalakinesis first of all um and it was part of our UK tour, and it would have been on about night two or three, and we were off to the Limelighting crew, and we pulled up outside, um, and it was uh, it was a strange gig, really, because we the, the only access we could get as members of the band um, was kind of access to the stage. We'd had a long day, and we could have gone in, but they uh, the the promoter or whoever it was who was there at the time, we didn't meet Ray until later on. He came uh, up to us at the end and introduced himself, and we had a chat. Um, they just said to us, look, I'll tell you what we'll do. There's the stage door. Just park up there, wait in the van, and we'll call you when the band before finishes. Um, what we did was went in and, and, and sort of had a look at the venue. It's a fabulous place to play, real proper grassroots venue. Um, I remember that uh, the decor was, I mean, it's one of those ones, the black walls and stuff like that, you know, and um, 
but one of the walls, at least one of the walls, maybe in two of the walls, were absolutely covered in posters for bands that had played there. Now, pretty much every band, every tribute band that you could think of has played the Limelight Club in Crew. And every time they played there, obviously this this wall was a, was an homage homage to that. So you had thousands of posters on this wall that were probably about you know an inch thick of posters that had been put up on this wall. And it really was a great thing to look at. It was a real history kind of um, what would you call it? Just just this kind of uh, I do know the word, but it won't come to me. Um, just just this this big pattern of of um, posters and everybody all the tribute bands state of quo and uh, limehouse lizzie and you know uh, the iron maidens and uh, stuff like that they were all played there um and are you experienced i think it was a Jimi hendrix tribute and um, some of them were featured on the tv but we'll get to that later on and i remember looking around and, and we went in and, and the sound crew said to us and the sound crew at that time or the sound sound technician was bloke on his own and he was probably about 60 um, jogging bottoms and a t-shirt and long hair and he, and he introduced himself and he chatted to us um, and he said he used to be Ozzy Osbourne's roadie and he said what are you I said well with two guitars bass and drums and uh, two vocals and he said yeah my speciality no problem tell you what go and sit in the van for a while the band before us setting up and then I'll call you when you're ready you don't need a um, sound check I've done that a thousand times so just set up, I'll mic you up, and then you're good to go. So we, we weren't worried about it. We just said, okay, look, you know, he seems to know what he's doing. Um, so I'm good with that. Um, and, you know, we, we knew a fair bit. We've played the game for enough years to not worry about it. And, and I think it's one of those things that as long as the vocal's loud enough when you first go on, and as long as everything's there, it doesn't take long to mix. So we went in. Eventually we got the call. We basically just pushed the fire door open. Uh, and the band that were on before loaded their gear out of the fire door and then we loaded in. And we went to the stage set up and uh, this sound guy was just moving a few things around, moving, moving mics around. Uh, I think it was a shared kit. Um, and then he just said, okay, just a quick line check, make sure everything's okay. Um, and, you know, we've got an audience in there, but he's got a microphone, he's talking to us through the monitors, just check your guitar, a couple of strums. And he said, good to, good to go. And to this day one of the best sounds that uh, we had, and it was on the fly. But it goes to show you when people know what they're doing and, and uh, you know, know exactly how to use the equipment that they have, that you can just get, you know, pretty much perfection off the bat. It was, it was a great sound. Um, and I think we had pretty much everything in a monitor. We could hear everything. And, um, yeah, we were looking at each other going, wow, you know, this, although we'd, we'd, we dealt with a few sound crews and some of the best sound crews across the UK at the Cavern and stuff like that, um, and Riga and the Esplanade, Esplanade and stuff like that. Um, this was a different, um, you know, just just literally in the fire door, set up, bung everything up there, you know, strum a couple of chords, right, you're good to go. We went on and played, did our 40 minutes or something. Thanks very much. Off. Um, Calamity Jane. Quick pack away, quick pack away, quick pack away. And then out the fire door and and off. So we didn't get that much time um, in terms of playing. But once we came out and we loaded the van again, we then went back through the entrance again um, and watched the, 
the rest of the bands and kind of chilled out and enjoyed the evening. And that was when we met Ray, who introduced himself and we had a chat for a while. And he said he really liked what we did and he'd see if we could sort out a support slot somewhere along the line, which didn't happen, but we did play there again, um, which I'll get to later on. Um, But I just remember thinking it was a, a really great venue to play and... I'd kind of forgot about it. By the end of the tour, it got forgotten about. And then we were putting a tour together for Color Canisius for two, uh, 2006. And I said, I want to play the limelight again. And, and my brother was like, oh, yeah, that was that one at um, Cruise. So I said, yeah, I want to go back. I want to go back and do that one. Um, so we contacted Ray and let him know that we were, you know, the month that we were touring the UK and what we were up to. Um, and we couldn't get the dates to fit. But we said, OK, well, look. You know, if, if anything comes in, then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll come back and play. It was, it was one we really wanted to play. Um, and then a couple of years later, um, I was watching the TV. It it kind of Calicanesis had, had begun to fizzle out at that point and we'd done everything that we wanted to do. Um, and there was a program on TV um, and it was Arena. It was BBC One and it was Arena. And it, I think it was called Into the Limelight. And it was a celebration of the um, Limelight Club and all of the bands that had played there. And I suddenly realised that uh, by this time we'd been in Oasis for about three or four years. Um, and we'd been doing a lot of the circuit and we played Blackburn and Derbyshire and all of the obvious places across the UK. And we got in touch with the Limelight Club and we said we'd like to come back. And, and we noticed that on the documentary where a lot of the bands that we knew... So Nirvana, we'd worked with Nirvana at one of the festivals. And we knew the jam very well, J-A-M-M. Um, Ray and uh, John, John Southern, who sadly is no longer with us. Uh, great guy, John. Um, had a, many a conversation with John backstage, who taught himself to play, pretty much taught himself to play quite late in life as well. Just suddenly picked up a guitar and... and kind of decided he wanted to do something and and ended up being very successful with a jam. They were at three or four nights a week and they were right across the UK and we had many a conversation with them. And unfortunately, John um, just wasn't in the best of health in the end um, and they decided to call time on what had been a very successful career and we worked with a jam many times. And we worked uh, um, with Limehouse Lizzie at one of the other things uh, that we did. Might have been Butlins or something. Be honest, I can't remember. But most of the bands that were on there, um, ABCD, which one of the first tribute bands I ever saw was ABCD. And it was a tribute to ACDC, of course, but it was the Bon Scott era. Um, and what I saw, I'm now a six foot five Angus, who was uh, Alice, he was called. Six foot five. And he was superb. And they were brilliant, and they sounded fantastic, and they were on there. And they had the usual suspects um, at the Limelight Club, and there was a feature on it uh, with the bands that had played there. And we realised, hey, look, we've worked with a lot of these people, and there's nothing Oasis there. So we contacted the Limelight Club, and we eventually got a date there, which we went and played. Um, And we had a pretty good night there, to be honest. And and then um, I think uh, we had another one in the book, and for some reason it didn't happen. Nothing to do with us. It was just something had happened. There was another big, um, if I remember rightly, there was another big festival in the area, and the promoter, uh, Ray, said to us, look, there's a big festival in the the area over that weekend. It's not worth doing it um, at that time because you're going to lose a big crowd. Um, 
so let's rebook and I'll, I'll get in touch. And then I think it was by the following year, um, I think Ray had either moved on and he'd moved on to another pub and was promoting that. Um, or it just didn't happen. But my experience at the Limelight Club was I'm glad I played it. I'm glad I've been there and I'm glad I did it. So just before we get onto the history of the Limelight Club, let's have a little look at um, just a few of the bands that played there and see if it jogs any memories. Don't forget, you can always um, send your correspondence to me um, at innovationstudiosuk at gmail, or you can go to the website www.innovationstudios.com, or you can find us on social media. But looking at this... Um, let's have a look. So in 1995, I think, they had bands like, they had Enraged. Enraged were there. Um, I'm having a look at the month here. Um, Enraged were there. Kings of Leon, OV. They were five, a fiver to get in. The Four Fighters. <laughs> they were eight pound. Um, so yes. Let's Zeppelin were five pounds. The Bon Jovi Experience were nine pounds. Acton Baby, which is obviously U2 tribute, were nine pounds. The B-Tails were nine pounds. Wonderwall were a fiver. Now, I saw Wonderwall years ago. Brilliant Oasis tribute. One of the first ones I saw. Uh, Vogue, which was a Madonna tribute. Um, Dirty DC. Um, and the Limelight Club also had... Um, a um, an unplugged bar as well in another section, which uh, I think it was upstairs. I'll get to the history of that in a minute. That's one of the bands that played there. Um, Osmosis played there. Stipe played there. They were a um, REM tribute. Uh, a gentleman called Mark Taylor. Uh, Rockeria. Iron on Maiden were there. The Sex Pistols Experience. Um, bon Jovi Experience. Guns Two Roses. Um, the Essential Journey, who were a tribute to classic rock and pop. Now, this is in October of 2007. So this isn't uh, that long before it started to wind itself down. Um, some of the other bands that played there were uh, High on Maiden. They were there on the 22nd of November 2009. Rush UK were there on 19th of November 2009. The UK Pink Floyd Experience were there on the 12th of November, 2009. Limehouse Lizzie were there on the 7th of November, 2009. Megadeth UK were there on the 30th of October, 2009. And T-Rex to see were there on the 17th of October, 2009. T-Rex to see I've seen everywhere, pretty much everywhere. Probably one of the most successful of the tribute bands um, on the on the circuit. So looking at the Limelight Club, it closed in 2010. Um, so they would have been some of the last bands to play there. Um, and it's fondly remembered um, all over social media by many, many different uh, uh, pages and and posts and stuff like that. Um and even even though there are pictures of the shell of the of the venue, hasn't uh, the, the pictures that were taken two or three years ago? Now there were plans to make it a housing estate. I'm not a hundred percent sure exactly where it is today, as I talk to you now. But this is uh, sort of a couple of years ago. People were posting pictures of it um, online, 
And uh, even looking at the shell of the place, it has an ambience, not ambience about it. Because originally, um, it began life as a church um, way back in 1869. And it had a church hall um, connected to it. Um, and by the time the Limelight Club came along, um, the church had pretty... It, it, was, it wasn't being used as a church and it had been... Um, a snooker club for many, many years um, beforehand. So it was a church and then it closed and it became a snooker club um, for about 22 years. And then that basically went under and it, and it was boarded up. And then it was found um, by, I think it was found by Ray, but it was certainly found by an organisation and Ray became a private, but I think Ray discovered it in about 1994. And Ray was already organising rock events in the town, but he was looking for a larger venue. Um, and the pubs he had looked at were, were just too small. But once he, he saw the this sort of derelict church turned snooker club, um, he realised it was right in the middle of the, you know, of, of the um, town, and it was pretty really good. It actually stood um, at um, one high town. Crew Cheshire, CW13BP. So, uh, one high town crew, Cheshire, CW13BP. Um, pub facilities included live music, pool table, real ale, and wireless internet provided by the cloud, which was the advert that they had there. So that's where it stood. So it was right in the middle of the town. And um, it was. It was a, an old church that had been something else. And they started renovating it once they took it over from in 19... Well, took it over in about 1990... Late 1992. And spent 1993 renovating it. Um, and there were regulars from, from the Rock Knights volunteering um, to help out, basically, because... They wanted a venue to play and they could see that there was a real opportunity to get a, a permanent rock music venue. Um, and the main church was turned into the bar and the concert hall, um, which we talked about. So, um, But the building next to it that, that used to be the church hall uh, became a rock cafe. And eventually the limelight opened its doors in 1994 and attracted bands from all over the country um, and gigantic audiences at first. Um, that in the end, they decided to extend um, part of the bar. And I believe that the Rock Cafe eventually became, or half of that became um, a part of the main venue so that people could, they could get more people in to see the bands. Because you have to remember that back, back then, um, a bit like the Army and Navy in Chelmsford and a bit like the Esplanade in, in Southend, um, in Crew, this was one of the venues that was the kind of go-to venue. There weren't venues around every corner this was like the main one for the bands to go and if you were playing in crew you were playing at the limelight club because that was where you wanted to play if you anywhere else other than that was pretty much a pub and when i first started out in essex riga was where you wanted to play esplanade was where you wanted to play other than that it was a pub um chinneries may have been there but i think may, may have been called something else at that time but um anyway um so there was a beer garden um as well and um it, it was there was a, a little area of it that was a pub kind of like a pub you had pool tables and games machines and and stuff like that and uh, as you went in the bar was on the right um 
and uh, basically it was a very, very successful um, venue for many, many years. Um, accommodation, I believe it was it was um, 300. Um, any more than that, I think, would have been a bit of a squeeze. I'm sure there were nights where there were more than 300, um, but that was the most people you could get in there. And, of course, international artists like Glenn Tilbrook, Chris Difford, uh, had played there, and um, obviously the, the usual... Uh, ones that have that have cropped up at uh, Riga and stuff like that. So, um, uh, De- I would say Deborah Bonham. I'm sure it's Deborah Bonham. Um, but people like that, Steve Hooker, Wilco. I'm sure the Feel Goods or, or or a variation of the Feel Goods would have played there, and all of these legends of that sort of industry. Um, I know. Um, I believe Los Pacaminos played there. Um, who uh, Paul Young, of course. Um, and I believe that. Um, uh, many uh, an international artist played a warm-up show there. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but there were rumours um, that uh, one night at Limelight Club, there was a band called Metalheads, and it was uh, advertised as a Metallica tribute. Um, and it's written, I read it somewhere, that um, when uh, when the audience arrived, it was actually Metallica doing a warm-up for the UK tour. But... I don't know whether that's true, whether it's substantiated. If anybody knows, then um, let me know. But um, there we go. But the Limelight Club was there until 2007 was when it started to... Um, the owner decided to sell it. Um, and it, um, it it's alleged that uh, he decided to sell up and go and live on a narrow boat. So I don't know um, whether that's true or not, but... Um, but in spite of the success, it was proving to be quite stressful. Um, so Ray decided he, he wanted to hand over the venue to someone who would continue to drive it on. Um, there's not an awful lot known about the next owner or the next promoter. Now, this is where the grey area is because um, I'm not 100% sure if Ray was the owner of the limelight or if he was the promoter. Some places have an owner and a promoter. Um, but... I don't know. So again, if I can get some, um, you know, some some information on that, I'd be grateful. Um, now it closed as as I said in 2010, but it continued to attract um, the local media. There was an arson attack in 2015, which uh, pretty much gutted it, um, uh, and and any damage that wasn't done. Um, there was another arson attack in 2000 and late 2016. And then in 2017, um, there was some, um, I don't know what you'd call them. I mean, they call it exploration on YouTube and they call it kind of whatever, but it, technically it's trespassing. But for some reason, it's called abandoned places or whatever. And there were some explorers in there. Um, and they found, um, unfortunately, a um a body hanging somebody had hung themselves in there um and um which obviously must be absolutely dreadful and and to their to their credit they didn't actually broadcast it um or anything like that um they i don't know how long it had been there apparently but um it was identified as a 26 year old polish man um who was homeless and in the lead up to his suicide he'd been battling with alcohol and drug addictions but he'd been claiming that he desperately wanted to return to Poland um, 
he'd been arrested in 2016 for scrawling, we are not the enemy, we want respect, in huge letters um, across the floor. So I'm not quite sure of that, but anyway, um, I don't really know what to say, but uh, that's uh, that. anything like that is a shame if anybody feels a need to do that. But it must be pretty terrifying to, to be exploring somewhere like that, which is quite dark and kind of dingy anyway when you're trying to learn about something like that and then to walk in and to find that someone has um, taken their own life in that fashion. It must be pretty rough. Um, to get away from that um, and talking more about the limelight and how it was, um, now there was an upper floor which was often referred to as the rafters bar um, because there, it still had the ceiling rafters uh, in place. It, it uh, went a few redesigns over the years. It had pool tables for a while, and then it had its own bar and a dance floor, um, and apparently had its own little bowling alley at, at one point. But I'm, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure if I, um, if if um, I saw that. But again, um, any of your um, correspondence would be welcome. But um, I vaguely remember playing or seeing a bowling alley at one of the venues that I played, but I don't know if it was a limelight. This is the problem. It's trying to remember where you were. Um, so it's posters were covering the walls down there, and some of the posters were for the police, for Changes Bowie, um, Nirvana again, um, Dirty DC, um, Iron on Maiden, High on Maiden, um, and the, the, as I said, it was really, really um, specialist for tribute bands. I, I, I like, I like Cooper. <laughs> I like Cooper. Um, and this is the thing with the tribute bands. A lot of the names and things like that are always, always fun, um, and always clever as well. With the logos pretty similar to, um, you know, to the main artist. You have to look twice sometimes. There are bands out there called OAC Five. You know, and you look at it and you think, okay, so the, the you know, the S is uh, five. Um, but going back to the concert hall, it's not exactly underground. Um, the uh, front doors led through the uh, through the floor ab- above. Um, and the stairs outside kind of led up to the front door. But it, um, it kind of... Um, if, if you, when you... When you went into the Limelight Club, you went upstairs... It, through the front door and then downstairs into the concert hall. Um, but I don't know if originally it may have had to, uh, like, a, a, another floor, but I don't think so. I think you sort of went up and, and back down. Um, and um, some, somebody had, uh, had, had mentioned on Facebook that it may have been that the if the church service was held on the floor that was the same level as the door, then um, quite possibly it might have all been knocked through and there might have been a crypt underneath. Um, I don't know, but... Um, some people might find the idea of playing rock music um, in a former place of worship to be a bit a bit strange. Um, I, su- I suppose you know to be to be playing in a place of worship is one thing. To be playing, um, I'm going to say it. To be playing the devil's music um, in the Lord's house um, probably is a bit of a contradiction in terms. But then you have to remember that a lot of people, and not me. But a lot of people do um, kind of turn their nose up and frown at the fact that Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden is a born-again Christian. And bearing in mind that, not that I believe they are, but but the amount of 
of um, scepticism that they've had over the years about them playing, you know, the devil's music and the number of the beast and stuff like that. And their drummer's a born-again Christian, which to me is kind of two fingers up, first of all. Like, okay, look. But secondly, I saw an interview with Nico and he said, I play in a, in a, in a band and that's all I do. And I have to find a way of, you know, of, of, of making money and playing drums. And, and he said, a number one, when it comes to being a born-again Christian, is forgiveness. So I believe that for any, any sins that I may commit, I'm forgiven. Um, now, I don't know if that's the exact quote, as I don't know Nico uh, personally. But I think what he was getting at was that um, anything that he does in life, he does a lot of good in life. He brings pleasure to a lot of people, makes a lot of people happy with the music he plays. And it's not his fault if other people make something of that music that it's not actually technically supposed to be. A lot of it... Um, when you listen to Maiden, is um, just kind of um, deep, meaningful stuff. And actually, the number of the beast came from a dream. Um, so, I mean, yesterday by Paul McCartney was a dream, and the number of the beast by Steve Harris of Iron Maiden was a dream. So whether or not it's true or not, it depends what many people make of it, I suppose. But um, any, anyway, the people... I, I always found that that was part of the, the um, intrigue intrigue for me was was to play a place that was obviously used to be a big church and here you are rocking up and playing a load of heavy heavy stuff and playing rock in there but um a couple of people had, had said that um playing rock music in a former place of worship is a bit strange um but um but for rock music to play the, to be played in what may have been a crypt, so just getting back to what I said a minute ago, so there may have been a floor that was worship, and then underneath that, when you went back down the stairs again, um, if it was played in a crypt, um, people seem to think that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, there's a couple of really interesting photos of, of the limelight that you can find online. Um, just absolutely um, looks like a, a really great place to play. Um, and it was a great place to play. And, and looking at the pictures on there, um, it, it, it's so atmospheric, so big, and um, really was the, a, a fantastic place to play. Now, it did move on to become a nightclub, um, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, basically, there was a plan to convert the whole area into houses, and it would have been um, stripped and knocked down and stuff like that. And this is a couple of years ago. Um but it, with its, um, it, but because of its sort of wonderful architecture and its hi historic significance as as a place of worship and as a music venue, um, I feel like pe people of crew felt like it needed to stay, and it needed to stay even if it was just uh, it stayed as a derelict building. But I, I don't people don't really know what to what to make of it. Um, but um, there there was a, a plan um, to. Um, yeah, to, to knock it down and to build houses. Now, this is what I'm trying to find out. Where exactly is it now? It was a nightclub for a few years. Um, and um, really, it was just, uh, although it was quite interesting as a nightclub and it worked and they had two or three different rooms that had two or three different um, styles of music. A lot of venues used to do things like this. You'd have one room that was uh, rock music and one room that was um, dance music and things like that. Um, and and uh, quite often you would go in a, in a different room and it worked quite well um, as basically as as um, a, an option for the night. So you could go in there and um, 
you know you could go in and, and find out well you could go and listen to dance music on maybe one of the one of the floors and listen to uh, rock music in one of the other ones and it it kept you moving around but um just a little bit about ray who who actually um ran it for a, a many many years um he was originally a radio a radio engineer and he became it became a rock club owner so it, uh, apparently ray was the owner and uh ray brisson followed the dream um, and he did establish one of the best venues in the northeast, and it, it brought people from across um, the UK to crew because a lot of the bands that would play there, particularly if you had an international band play in there, a warm-up show or something like that, um, then many many people would come and uh, travel up to see a band because to go and see a big band in a small venue um, is just uh, you know must be unbelievable. Um, so a lot of the time it was worth putting the miles in. Um, now, in the 70s, uh, Ray was a radio and TV engineer, uh, which gave him the experience in, in the music industry. And, and it, because he was always a rock fan, um, he would be sound checking some of the top acts. Um, but it, Ray always said that watching bands was never enough. He wanted to run the shows and he wanted to stage um, rock events. Uh, Ray started at a place called the Cheshire Cheese, and he used to run a rock disco. Um, and then from the Cheshire Cheese, he moved across to the Earl of Crewe and he hired the upstairs function room. Um, and there he used to put bands on. Um, and also, um, I think he, he was still doing his rock disco at, at that particular time as well. Um, and rock discos gave people an opportunity to celebrate, you know, in, in their own space, so to speak. Um, and then there was a, a venue called The Manor, um, and it was still a proper pub then, and that was that would have been in the um, the late eighties and early nineties. Um, and Ray looked at it and thought, okay, look, these bands are coming into the manor, and they're coming in um, to Liola Crew and whatever, and and, I, and we're packing it out. So maybe it's time um, to look at a bigger venue and to see if there's uh, something else that we can find. Um, so at that particular time, when he was running the manor. Um, he was still working full time um, as an electrical technician, um, and um, looking. He was originally looking for a pub with a large back room, um, and he, he had a look, and, he, and uh, the pubs weren't really, really big enough. Um, and then all of a sudden, he came across the old church on Hightown, and it had been the Victoria Snooker Club, but it was boarded up, um, and there and. Uh, Apparently, there was a tree growing on the front steps and a large for sale to let sign. Um, so I ran a look around the place and, and realised there was a lot of work to be done. But um, if you have a feeling for it, you just you just have a feeling for something like that. And he realised that the, he could see what maybe other people couldn't see. Um, and um, Ray negotiated a three-year lease that allowed him to buy the venue Um that um, if he wanted to, which eventually he did. Um, and um, as I said earlier, um, trying to put the the uh, Limelight Club or getting the Limelight Club into business wasn't a problem for Ray because there were so many regulars from his rock nights um, who were keen to see a permanent rock venue open. Um, he said he was flattered by the, in this interview I found, he was so flattered by the volunteers who stepped forward and helped to create it. And they, they signed the papers in March of 1994. Um, and it took eight months to refurbish the place. So that means it would have opened in November. 
um, in uh, November of 1994. Um, it wasn't a case of just a lick of paint and a new carpet. It had to be right. So it was plumbers, electricians, plasterers, carpenters were all offering their services to uh, to help with the Limelight Club and to set it up. And crew needed a big stage. So they decided to have a look. And, uh, and the manor at that time, which is where Ray was running his other... Um, running his other shows and uh, rock discos it was being turned into a food pub so a lot of the fixtures and fittings came from there so there were a lot of donations um, being sort of offered to Ray at that particular time and he'd heard about a 40-foot bar being sold by Gorsty Hall and that was delivered to the Limelight Club uh, by Articulated Lorry um, 10 of them put it put it in there um, and it eventually opened in November 1994 um, and the Limelight was born um now immediately um people were buzzing and were absolutely um just couldn't couldn't wait to get in there um and to say that the new club flourished um would be an understatement um the band room failed to sell out now a huge success in terms of the the main bar um and uh, i think it was as i said that there was like a, a rock cafe at the side but, uh, and I got it wrong earlier, I said there were 300, 400 was the, um, was the capacity for the main bar. So, um, I mean, you're looking at 400 people in one place at one time. That's huge. That's a lot of people to get in. Um, but they, um, after about a year after they opened, although the bar was busy and although it was a, it was a thriving place and pretty much everybody, it was the place to be. Because if you, even if you didn't want to see the band... You could go and sit in a bar. You could go to the Rock Cafe. Probably, you know, there was so much to do. And then there was a, a local band called Tower Struck Down headlined. Um, and they played across the UK and they'd had a little bit of chart success. Now, I have to say, I haven't come across Tower Struck Down, but I will do now. I've read this. Um, and, and Ray said, although it would be, a, he felt it would be a decent crowd, crowd um, he, he wasn't sure that it would sell out. But within 20 minutes of the doors opening, um, it sold out. They had their their elusive 400 sellout. Now, 400 punters, even at a fiver, that's a lot of money coming in on one night. And there were people upstairs trying to listen because they couldn't get into the band. And I think um, Ray said that at that particular point, he knew that there was an opportunity, a real opportunity that could make a real success of that place. Um, and he then invited them back the next evening to play another show um, as like an added show for those who couldn't get in, and it sold out again. Um, so there we are. So that was 1994. By 1996, uh, the better cover bands, or the better tribute bands, um, started to play there um, rather than the local ones. So at first it was the local people, uh, local bands from crew who had a nice following in the area. But now you had tributes to U2, Floyd, Thin Lizzy, um, and of course, the regulars didn't want to watch the same bands again, so the best of the tribute circuit were invited down, um, and they could they could go to Liverpool, Manchester, but that would cost a tenner on a train and twenty pounds to see a band. Whereas at the Limelight, they could have the Australian Pink Floyd and T Rex to see and Actung Baby and Limehouse Lizzie and and um, Wonderwall uh, for a fiver. So people could see on their doorstep these bands were coming in. And because of the size of the venue and because of the popularity of the venue, most of these bands were happy to play there because they felt they could get 400 people at a fiver 
you know, that's that's two grand. And then once the obviously there's a door split or something like that, but all of a sudden you you get in you get in four hundred people at a five all. In my opinion, that's as good as two hundred people at a tenner. Um, because it's probably even better because you're two hundred extra people who will tell their mates. So from a rock band point of view and a tribute band point of view, especially if you're in a door split, the limelight was the place to play. And and the public loved it, and, and not just the people of crew. A lot of people would travel because you could go and see a, a, an absolutely white-hot tribute band for a fiver, staying crew maybe at Travel Lodge or something, or, or Travel Lodge or a hotel or something like that. And... You know, and, and some of these international artists. That was the thing with Ray. He kept it affordable. He kept it real. He didn't price himself out trying to get 200 people in at a tenner. He was happy to have 400 people in at a fiver to get the people through the door because that amount of people, money over the bar, you make a fortune. So they started to, once they started to get the popularity and more and more people started to come and uh, stay at the venue and watch the venue, you know, watch bands at the venue, um, they decided that they would expand. They created the Annex Bar, and then they bought the adjacent shops that became the Cafe Bar. Um, and a lot of the gigs were oversubscribed. They put sold-out signs on the door, but they, they would still try and squeeze in. So the Annex would often serve as a spillover space for people who could not get downstairs. Now, this is what I said, that part of that area was knocked through earlier. And they looked at extensions and even a relocation, it just never seemed to stop growing. And there was a waiting list for bands to appear at the club as couldn't get them in. Um, unbelievable. The, the, they had sort of 10,000 emails. They had 55, uh, 55 staff working there. It was an enormous family of music fans. Um, and local businesses would contact us um, just for just trying to coordinate with gig schedules. Um Sometimes, you know, if there was a big act there, the local B&Bs would fill up. So it was really a knock-on effect. If, if a big band were playing there um, at crew, then all the B&Bs in the area would, of course, uh, sell out because people were staying. Um, and it was absolutely um, just all, all the local businesses would put extra staff on. So you're talking about all these people traveling into town to see a particular band. So maybe the chippies and the takeaways would stay open and the restaurants would stay open um, that hour later. And, um, you know, all the B&Bs would be busy and all the local businesses. So that's the thing. Um, and it just seemed to be um, the place to be. And then, as I said, in, in 2007, um, Ray just suddenly put the club up for sale. And I don't think people realised um, how drained he was and how, because Ray was a hands-on promoter. He, he had plenty of staff working for him, but most of the promoters that I'd worked for over the years and knew, this, knew the job the, the best were the ones who were hands-on. And Ray was hands-on and he was involved in everything, probably from you know dealing with the bands himself to probably even help him with the posters. And he's been there for 14 years, and, and it's a tough job to do. And by then, the, the club is running like clockwork, but there's so much going on behind the scenes. And, and uh, Ray had some medical advice and was, and was said, like, you're seriously stressed out. You need to take a step back. And this was when the, the BBC were uh, approached and came to make a film, which was called Into the Limelight. Um, and basically... Um, the uh, Ray had a buyer 
and he did a PR job for the incoming buyer and he talking about the good times and how much potential a limelight had. Um, but Ray wanted the venue to move on and go from strength to strength and um, it needed a new leader. So uh, Ray took that opportunity, that TV opportunity to really push the place and to really do a PR job for somebody else to jump in and he immediately found a buyer. Um, and um, although Ray said at this particular time, uh, this interview that I read, um, he was glad that he sold the place, but of course he missed it. Um, and Ray moved on to um, a place called the Jolly Tar Pub in Wardle, um, and everything was more relaxed. It's just a few staff, not many bands that are coming in, and uh, and a great vibe. Just some local bands coming in and playing stuff like that. But Ray was a hands-on promoter, and as I said, I only met him a couple of times. Um, Oasis were booked there, went and played it. Um, we had a pretty good night there. We didn't sell out. We had probably uh, 200 or so in there. Um, and it was a, a brilliant place to play. And it became a nightclub and for a little while. And then it became um, pretty much derelict. And now it's just waiting um, to be demolished or, it, or the demolition has started. I don't know if it'll ever be a music venue again. Um, but let me take this opportunity to... Um, although I only met him a couple of times, from what I've read about him, it's people like Ray that keep um, the grassroots music industry alive. It's people like that that care about music. And I'll, I'll mention a few other people as well. Riga Steve, who was a good friend of mine, and, and he's interviewed a few weeks ago. A gentleman called Dave Kitteridge, who was at uh, Riga and then the Touchline. People like Martin Wood, who worked so hard to... Um, carry on neil harding as well who, who works at uh, at the lee community center locally to me and so many of these people and um i think it felt right to pay tribute to the limelight club in crew and to pay tribute to ray bisham and to thank him and uh obviously um not not just from me but most of the people are in in grassroots music have a huge thank you to say to ray and um Look, mate, thanks for what you did. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to play the limelight. Um, and thanks to the, for the pleasure that you brought to so many fans at grassroots level. Thanks for making music so accessible where people could go and see a brilliant band with just a bit of change in their pocket. And, um, you know, obviously, I'm sure that I won't be the only person that sends my best wishes and my condolences and um, my love and respect to his family and to everybody, uh, and I'm sure that comes from many, many international musicians as well as national musicians. The Limelight Club in Crew, um, one of the legendary grassroots music UK venues. That wraps it up this week. I hope you enjoyed my little look back at uh, Limelight Club in Crew. I will let you know what I'm looking at next week. I don't have any interviews for the first uh, couple of weeks of January. January is a bit of a busy month for me in terms of um, just trying to get everything together. I mean, I've got to, got to try and do my accounts and got to try and uh, I've got phone calls coming in and emails and people starting to book for this year that didn't get me, you know, from September last year. So the work's starting to roll in, so I get a bit snowed under sometimes, but I felt it important this week to sit and to, and to look at the Limelight Club and crew. Next week I'll do another venue or I might have an interview. I'll let you know. Um, via social media we're on instagram and facebook and all of that stuff thanks for your subscriptions 
Don't forget www.innovationstudios.com to find out a little bit more about the studio and all of the workshops we do and the lessons that I do here and the interaction you can have. Don't forget uh, Innovation Studios UK at Gmail if you want to contribute or if you want to comment on what you've heard over the last 47 minutes. Um, or correct me on anything I may have got wrong. Look, sometimes I only go on the information that I find and I spend hours trying to research stuff on the internet and, and social media just trying to find out more about these uh, venues. So sometimes it's a little bit, um, you know, the, the, the filters get filtered a bit and some and, and what's rumour becomes true and what's true becomes rumour and sometimes you, you get a little bit lost. But... Um, I hope I got most of it right, and uh, if I didn't, then of course when I'm back next week, I'll fix anything that isn't right. But I hope you've enjoyed my little look at the Limelight Clubbing crew, and I'll be back next week. But for now, go and have a really, really great week. Don't forget the road stories are back on Monday at 5 o'clock, your daily bite-sized chunks of whatever I've got in my head. That's the Grassroots, the final curtain call, Legendary Grassroots Music Remembered. That is episode 17. Um, it is the 14th of January 2022 and I'll see you next Friday alright take care have a great weekend Yours in Music signing off bye bye for now